This is a fascicle from the Shobogenzo titled Shwaku Makusa, which is translated as refrain from all evil whatsoever. Rakuten, the governor of Hangchao, trained under meditation master Dorin of Choka. One day, Rakuten asked Dorin, just what is the major intention of the Buddha Dharma? Dorin replied, refrain from all evil whatsoever, uphold and practice all that is good. Rakuten remarked, if that's all there is to it, even a child of three knows how to say that. Dorin replied, though a three-year-old child can say it, there are old men in their 80s who still cannot put it into practice. Upon hearing this matter, Rakuten then bowed in gratitude. So it's good to be here today, physically be here. It's been a while, three months. And uh, although we look a little strange with our mouths covered, Zen is faceless. And today, now, that's how Zen looks like. Partially here, partially online. Zen has no space, has no time, has no box. As long as there is the desire to practice, as long as we understand what it is that we are practicing, then we can always practice. So today, to mark this special occasion of uh, returning to physically being a Zendo, we'll hold Fusatsu ceremony, which is a time we all recite the 16 Bodhisattva precepts together. And Fusatsu is a traditional event which is held on, on some regular basis in many Zen communities, mostly Soto, for the purpose of raising the intention to live our lives in accordance with the Buddha Dharma, in accordance with reality. And this is not Jukai. Jukai is a time where it's actually a ceremony that uh, culminates marks the culmination of a long study and contemplation. And during that ceremony, a practitioner takes the precepts, takes on the, the vows. What we do together today, what we are going to do together today is different. From the beginning, from the first day we enter a practice center, we are expected to practice in accordance with these vows. Of course, there are many levels of that, there are many uh, degrees of depth which unravel as we get deeper into practice, but nonetheless, from the beginning, this is what we are working with, all practitioners. So, Futsatsu. The word Futsatsu comes from the Sanskrit word posada, which means to fast and to purge the body of harmful toxins that have accumulated as a result of consuming unwholesome foods. 
So like the body, the mind can also be intoxicated by an accumulation of harmful impurities through unobserved thinking and unwholesome words and actions. So in the context of our practice, the word fusatsu has two meanings. First, to deprive the mind of unwholesome nourishment. And second, to provide the mind with wholesome nourishment. So to avoid doing harm and to do good. And it may sound simple. And I think that most people would probably say that they do not want to cause harm. But as we see in our country and around the world, and as we know from our own experiences, it is only simple to say the words. And there's a long distance between the mouth and the legs. The mouth is speaking, the legs are doing something, the legs and the arms are doing something completely different. If we want those words to manifest in our lives, we need to raise deliberate intention, commit to practice, and examine. Examine deeply how our mind moves and how we follow it without much contemplation. It is common to have a general notion of wanting to be at peace, wanting to not cause harm to ourselves or others. And at the same time, feel fully, feel fully justified to perpetuate conflicts, hold grudges for years, and act in ways that result in harm again and again. If you would ask anyone who is engaged in some ongoing conflict or harbors hatred and animosity towards other people, they will always give you plenty of good reasons for why they act this way. They may say, well, generally speaking, of course, I just want to be at peace. Of course, I do not want to hurt anybody. But, but, and there begins the story. And there begin the justification. Maybe somebody acted in some way some years ago or yesterday. How could we forgive them? We have this notion that if we let it go, it means that we actually justify that kind of behavior. Is that true? Does letting go have anything to do, letting go of how we feel, does that have anything to do with the action we did not like, or the action we felt that was hurtful to us, or is hurtful to us now. And when we don't let go, when we hold on, what does that mean? How does suffering look like? And who is suffering? And maybe about, about the way somebody acted in the past, or about how other people speak and act these days towards us. There's always a reason to harbor ill will, and there's always a reason to cause harm. No one is doing it just because. So the question is, is that how we want to spend the rest of our time on this planet, in this body. How many times we find ourselves compelled to speak in harsh language 
and later regret what we said? How many times we act in ways that don't reflect how we would like to be and then have to face the harmful consequences of our actions and clean up the mess? Since we are heavily influenced by our karma and conditioning, we often end up going along for the ride and create harmful complications. As in the saying, an unexamined mind is not only unreliable, it cannot avoid doing harm. It's a very lucid statement. So to get off these destructive cycles, we have to turn on the lights so we can see the habitual tendencies more clearly and apply some efforts to abandon what is unwholesome and strengthen and nurture what is wholesome. To quell harmful propensities and patterns of behavior which draw a tremendous amount of energy and attention from us. And then to divert this newfound energy to the cultivation of wisdom and then speak and act in ways that benefit everyone. How much energy is being wasted while we perpetuate all those thoughts that we ourselves feel justified to do and we can explain it to others but mostly to ourselves. The six paramitas along with the bodhisattva precepts outline the way to do just that. It is a way to nurture what we call the sacred fetus, the way-seeking mind, the way to nurture what brings us to the cushion again and again to sit, what brings us to our practice center. Within the six paramitas, the precept fall under the one that describes the precepts is the Siddha Paramita, which means the perfection of morality. It is the second on the list, right after Danna Paramita, which we talked about a couple of weeks ago, and right before Ksanti Paramita, the perfection of forbearance, patience, which we discussed last Sunday. So as always, it is very fitting The six paramitas work together in various ways as a multifaceted catalyst that leads to living a wholesome life as human beings. In relation to Sila Paramita, perfection of morality, there's a natural progression that begins with Janna Paramita, Zazen, meditation. The practice of Zazen gives birth to Prajna Paramita, wisdom. And Prajna manifests in our daily life as Sila, upholding the precepts, morality, compassionate actions. If we take Sila out of this interconnected progression, it will lead to what we call idiot compassion, which is getting busy running around to do good for others without the ability to discern the skillfulness or appropriateness of our actions. If the eye of wisdom is not open, doing good can lead to harm. We can become self-righteous about it. 
In Zen we say, we have to have the dragon's head and the tail also. A dragon's tail and a dragon's head. If there's only the tail without the head, and the tail actually alludes to actions, compassionate actions, the head is a very important part of the body. If the head is not in the right place, the tail may have its own ideas. And conversely, if the tail is lost, what about the head? One cannot function without the other. In fact, one is the other. This also works with the three treasures, that natural progression of zazen, wisdom, and morality. The Buddha Dhamma is Sangha. Through Zazen, we realize our original face. Through embracing the Dharma, we embody wisdom. And by manifesting ourselves within the Sangha, we practice morality through upholding the precepts. There's another very important aspect that we have to uh, look at when we study or examine precepts. And it is the fact that they are considered living vows which means that they are tested and verified through our own lives, through our own practice. These are not like the Ten Commandments to be followed dogmatically. We work with vows in a nimble and appropriate way that has to fit the moment rather the concept. So if we would like to, if we would follow them dogmatically, Right? If we end up following them dogmatically, that would lead to a rigid and a dangerous state of mind and self-righteousness. Essentially, we vow to be in accordance with wisdom and live in harmony with all creations. That's the bottom line. That's what we are taking up and work with. And the Bodhisattva precepts represent the bottom line of our practice. This is where the rubber meets the road. And our practice is tested, being refined and actualized for the sake of all creations. Shishin Roshi said that once he asked Maizumi, if anything of us continues after we die. He said he asked that. He asked different teachers the same question. And Maizumi Roshi said, yes. There is. The vows continue after we die. Isn't that true? What continues after we die is the consequences, or the consequences of our actions. There's no way to know, there's no way to tell how far it will go. Long after we, are, we no longer exist within this body, Harmful, harmful consequences may keep being perpetuated. Our own harmful consequences may be perpetuated for hundreds of years after we die. And the other side of that, when we take care, when we do good, when we pay attention, when we examine, 
that also continues way after we die. So does it matter? Should we pay attention? Should we care? Only you can answer. And the only way to answer is through actions. So Vakitena has told him, what is the major intention of this practice, of the Buddha Dharma? And Doran replied, refrain from all evil whatsoever, uphold and practice all that is good. Sounds simple. That's why Rakuten remarked, well, if that's all there is to it, a three-year-old can say that. And Rakuten is correct. There is nothing special about Zen or about the precepts. Everyone is born with the inherent capacity to live in perfect accord with reality and live in harmony with all the different inhabitants of this planet, all the strange inhabitants of this planet. We're also born with karma and we accumulate all kinds of conditionings from the moment we are born. So we have to be willing to roll up the sleeves and do some work to bring to fruition that which is inherent. It's not going to happen by itself. <clears throat> As Master Longji said, today is not your first arrival here. Since the ancient home before the empty kalpa, clearly nothing has been obscured. Although you are inherently spirited and splendid, still you must go ahead and enact it. Every day, every moment. You must, we must go ahead and enact it. So Dorin replied, though a three-year-old child can say it, there are old people in their 80s and 90s who cannot put it into practice. Rakuten also underestimated the actual meaning of it, so Dorin said to him, though a three-year-old child can say it, there is, or there are, older people who, can, who still cannot put it into practice. And Dogen commented on this saying, to think that a three-year-old child cannot give a voice to the, to the Buddha Dharma, or to think that a three-year-old child is cute, is the height of foolishness. This is because clarifying what birth is and clarifying what death is constitutes the most important matter for a Buddhist practitioner. Of course. The inevitable should be the most important aspect of our practice. Dogen continued, the master out of pity could not give up on Rakuten and went on to say, though a three-year-old can say it, there are all the people who cannot put into practice. The heart of what he said exists in what a child of three can say, and this we must thoroughly investigate. Also, there is the practice which 80-year-olds may not be doing, but which we must diligently engage in. This refrain from all evil whatsoever is not something that worldly people are apt to think of before concocting 
what they are going to do. The karmic consequences of our good and bad actions are what we are training with. End of quote. The karmic consequences, again I'll say, the karmic consequences of our good and bad actions is what we are training with. So we may want to practice, but it is so important that we understand what we are practicing with. While we raise all those intentions, all those wonderful intentions, of course I want to be at peace. Of course I do not want to cause harm. The words are great. But in the background, in the background, there is something else that's operating. And it has, it has its own volition. It has its own life. And it will take us for a ride that wreaks havoc again and again and again. So from the first day we enter this practice, we make a vow to be fearless bodhisattvas and to refrain from doing harm and do good. Even while our minds concoct all kinds of stories about ourselves and about others, even while the forces of our karma operate strongly within us. As I mentioned last Sunday, Bodhisattva is the one who's not phased or impressed by what happens in life. We are up for it. We are ready for it. There's no doubt about that. We are ready for it all. We were born ready for it. problem is we mind too much. The less you mind, the more you can care. The more you mind, the less you can care. You may say a lot about caring. We may speak a lot about caring. But if we mind, that minding gets in the way. And everything becomes an obstacle. Everybody, potentially, becomes or can become an obstacle. Of course, I want to do good. I don't want to cause harm. Only if he or she stop behaving this way. Right? We're all saying that. Only if this did not happen in the past. Or only if this will, only if I have guarantees that that will happen in the future. Then I can do some good. So what does it mean to be a fearless bodhisattva? Let me go back to something I read I think a year ago, from Chongyam Trumpa, he talked about the daily work of a bodhisattva. You know, I'll read a little bit for what he, what he wrote. Taking the bodhisattva vow implies that instead of holding our own individual territory and defending it tooth and nail, we become open to the world that we are living in. It means we are willing to take on greater responsibility, immense responsibility. In fact, it means taking a big chance. Not knowing what's going to happen, we still do it. But joining this tradition also makes tremendous demands on us. We, no, we are no longer intent on creating comfort for ourselves. We work with others. And this implies working with our, our other, our other, as well as the other other. 
our other is our projections and our sense of privacy and longing to make things comfortable for ourselves. The other other is the phenomenal world outside, which is filled with screaming kids, dirty dishes, confused spiritual practitioners, and assaulted sentient beings. Many of them cause harm. The only way to break the chain reaction of confusion and pain is to take the responsibility ourselves. If we do not deal with this situation of confusion, if we do not do something about it ourselves, nothing will ever happen. We cannot count on others to do it for us. It is our responsibility. These are very important words in these times with what's happening in this country. We have to do. Do we know what to do? Do we know how it looks like? Or do we get busy doing things without the dragon's head to volunteer, to donate, hold signs up? Is that where it's at? It may be. That may be causing harm as well. So I'll continue with this quote. We said, we have the tremendous power to change the course of the world's karma. We do have that power. So in taking the Bodhisattva vow, we are acknowledging that we are not going to be instigators of further chaos and misery in the world. But we are going to be liberators, Bodhisattva, inspired to work on ourselves as well as with other people. There is a tremendous inspiration in having decided to work with others. We no longer try to build up our own grandiosity. We simply try to become human beings who are genuinely able to help others. And I think this is a very important point for those of us who are still trying to figure out what this practice is about. Is Zen for me or not? Well, let me check it out. Maybe I'll look at other styles or practices. And the heart of the practice has nothing to do with Zen. And I've said it many times, and I'm going to keep saying that. This is not about becoming a Buddhist. It's about learning how to live as a human being. Simply try to become human beings who are genuinely able to help others. That's what it's about. That is, we develop precisely that quality of selflessness which is generally lacking in our world. I think we would agree on that. Following the example of the Buddha who gave up his kingdom to dedicate his time to working with sentient beings, we are finally becoming useful to society. The work of a bodhisattva is without credentials. We could be beaten, kicked, or just unappreciated. But we remain kind and willing to work with others. It is a totally non-credit situation. Who wants to do it? Right? Not only that we say you're not going to get anything off it, you may be kicked around for doing that. 
You may be belittled. You may be disregarded, unappreciated for doing all that. Well, maybe I won't do it. So why practice is a good question. Why should we aspire to find out what it is to live like a human being? I got better things to do. It is a totally non-credit situation. That it is. In order to drop our self-centeredness, which both limits our view and clouds our, our actions, it is necessary for us to develop a sense of compassion. Traditionally, this is done first by developing compassion towards oneself, then towards someone very close to you, and finally towards all sentient beings, including our enemies or the ones we claim to hate. <clears throat> Usually, we are in a stalemate with, stalemate with the world. Is he going to say he's sorry for me first, or am I going to apologize to him first? But in becoming a Bodhisattva, we break that barrier. We do not wait for the other person to make the first move. Hallelujah. We have decided to do it ourselves. We take the initiative to sit, to practice, and then to manifest that practice for the well-being of everybody. He said, people have a lot of problems and they suffer a great deal, obviously, but we have only half a grain of sand worth of awareness of that suffer, of what suffering is happening in this country alone. And then let alone the rest of the world. Millions of people in the world are suffering because of their lack of generosity, discipline, patience, exertion, meditation, and transcendental knowledge. And these are the six paramitas. Because of that, we suffer. The point of making the first move by taking the Bodhisattva vow is not to convert people to our particular view or practice. The idea is that we should contribute something to the world simply by our own way of relating, by our own gentleness. By, there's one more paragraph. By taking the Bodhisattva vow, we open ourselves to many demands. If we're asked to help, we should not refuse. If we're invited to be a parent, we should not refuse. In other words, we have to have some kind of interest in taking care of people, some appreciation of the phenomenal world and its occupants. It is not an easy matter. It requires that we do not complete, completely tire and put off. We are not completely tired and put off by people's heavy-handed neurosis, ego dirt, ego puke, or ego diarrhea. That's what we are dealing with. Instead, we are appreciative and are willing to clean up for them. It is a sense of softness whereby we allow situations to take place in spite of our little inconveniences. We allow situations to bother us, to overcrowd us. We do exactly what we don't want to do. Why? Because what we want to do does not yield anything but further harm. Does not yield something good. 
That we know. We know it from our own experiences. We know it from reading the news. We know it from looking around what's happening in the world. The proof is in the pudding. We understand that if we keep doing what we want to do without examining who wants that, we will keep perpetuating harm. Guaranteed. So what do we do? We roll up his sleeves. We take on the vows. We make commitments. And we don't make anything out of those vows. It sounds too pious. It sounds too religious. It sounds like something. Well, how do we know what it is if we don't examine it? If we let that mind that creates damage and harm decide for us what we do, how we move, or what's the next step, the next step will it will be guaranteed that the next step will create further harm. Why, why would it not? So we have to stop it. We have to change it. And that's where the precepts come in. That's why there is Jukai. That's why there is Fusatsu. So during Fusatsu, a word about... Uh, Prostrations. During Fosatsu, we recite together some yoga and we'll uh, say the vow, the precept, and we will recite it together, then make a full bow, full prostration. Now, why is that? Why do we bow? It looks strange at the beginning. Of course, we all understand that. Because there is a sense of subserviency, as if we are putting ourselves below something, right? That's the sense of the bow. But it's not quite like that. When we bow, when we put our forehead on the ground, we actualize equality. All things are one. There are no separations, there are no gaps. It is uh, an incredible practice of humility not elevating, not belittling, not lowering. Equality, all things are one. So we do it with the body. The body is the vehicle for transformation. The body is the vehicle for doing harm, and the body is the vehicle for doing good. So if we don't train the body, what's gonna happen? The automatic patterns repeat and return, of course. So to bow is to train the body. To put the forehead on the ground is to train the body. So if you're up for it, if you're comfortable with that, please join us. And if you're not, you can witness it, you can listen, you can recite the vow, you can put your hands in gasho. And after that, you can just nod. With us, when we go down for full prostration, you can just nod in agreement that we all understand what this is about. Okay, so I will go over that procedures in a minute. Thank you.